0: Good morning, everyone. God bless you guys. How are you? Good to be here with you. I'm here with my wife, Debbie. Raise your hand. My dear, sweet wife. Uh, In January, we will be celebrating 40 years of marriage. So pretty happy about that. We have three adult kids. We have eight grandkids. Um, We have chaos in our house. We're on a regular basis. Because of the grandkids, it's great. It's great. We moved to Napa in 1991, planted Cornerstone in 2018, passed it off to a younger guy. Um, started teaching in Bible colleges in South America and Mexico. Um, but However, in 2020, what year was that? 2020, yeah. Um, Calvary Chapel Vallejo, the pastor, went to be with the Lord, and they didn't have a backup plan, so I got recruited to be a short term sub, and it's been a year and a half, and uh, I'm still subbing. <laughs> But glad to be here with you guys today, glad to see uh, the church gathering. It's great that you guys are here, so God bless you for that effort to gather together, the assembling of the saints, so it's a great thing. Today we're going to be, our our main portion of our study today is going to be uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but I want to kind of give us a long-running start uh, into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, so uh, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, we're going to kind of look at some things about the church at Corinth that uh, let us, help us to understand why Paul was teaching them about the supremacy of love. Finding my way there, here on my iPad. Let me kind of, share a thought with you guys before we dive into the study today. <clears throat> I believe that the, the book of Corinth, 1 Corinthians is a corrective letter that Paul knew the problems that were going on in the church. So let me kind of throw a, a, an idea at you. Um, if my wife and I are out at a restaurant and, and the waiter is there at our table and you, you are walking up and you're walking up and you're hearing our conversation, you come in part way. And you hear me tell the waiter, medium rare, that's the answer. So what was the question? How do you like your steak? So (laughs) now you all know. (laughs) So sometimes by the answer, but you hear the answer, you can understand what the question was and not having heard the question. And I believe that this is the case with the church at Corinth, that the Apostle Paul, who was their founding pastor, understood the problems of the church. He, he knew them. He knew what they were like, what their inclinations were like. Uh, he had also heard things through the grapevine about them. And so this letter is a letter of correction to them. And he once again, he understands kind of which way they lean. And so what I'd like to, to do before we hit 1 Corinthians 13 is to show you some of the different ways that they were leaning and why they were missing out on the supremacy of love. It's because they were putting other things first. I'm out of frame, now am I in frame? How about this? (laughs) One of the problems that they had was that they were a church that loved their personalities. They loved their celebrity pastors. Here in chapter 1, look at uh, verse 10 to 13, if you would. First of all, in verses 4 to 8, Paul says you're... I thank God that you're gifted in every way. You're enriched with all spiritual understanding and gifts. So they were a gifted church. They were a well-taught church. They had had Paul. They had had Apollos. uh, Maybe Peter had been there as well. But they loved their, their celebrity pastors. Look at verse 10. I plead with you, brethren... By the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. It has been declared to me concerning you by my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And here we see it. Verse 12. Now I say this, that each one of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of, of Paul? No. They had their favorites. I'm wondering if those who were there when the church started, they, they loved the Apostle Paul, the aged apostle. Fiery at times, wise beyond anybody else, you know, trilingual, very intelligent man, could, could develop a, a, a point of, of presentation very well, almost like a, a prosecuting or a defending lawyer. If you read the book of Romans, you can see his logical thinking. But he was there for a while, and then he was gone. And apparently then, uh, Apollos was there, and there was an influence by Cephas. Apollos was from Alexandria, very eloquent, good speakers. They were known for their rhetoric. So some people like the old founding pastor, the roots, you know, when the, I remember when the church was small, you know, and when we started, and we used to meet in Jared's living room, and you know, that kind of thing. And then uh, Apollos came along, and boy, was he exciting to listen to. You know, Paul wasn't so exciting. In fact, they said his bodily presence is not impressive, but he he writes really good letters, and we're thankful for that, aren't we? And then there was Cephas, and that's another name for Peter. And so Peter was fiery at times, and Peter was the one that walked on the water, you know. So they had their favorites, and it's not wrong to have favorites. I have my favorites as well, but you don't want to let that cause you to pull away from other Christians, do you? to say, well, you know, they, they like such and such a pastor, but we like this pastor over here. And so it was causing divisions in the church. Look down at verse 26, if you would. He says, he's, he's telling them a lot of things, but look at verse 29, actually. He says that no flesh should glory in his presence. And they were glorying in flesh. They were glorying in their celebrity pastors that they liked. Look over at chapter 3, verse 1, if you would. He says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. So in chapter 1, he said, you're very, you're very enriched, you're very gifted, but you're acting like babies. I fed you with milk, verse 2, not with solid food, until now you're not able to receive it. Even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. That's just not a good adjective, is it, to have it <laughs> in front of your, your name? Oh, do you know so-and-so? Yeah, they're carnal. You just don't want to hear that about yourself. For where there are envy, strife, divisions among you, and that, that was the case. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Here we see it again, verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So they were still following their personalities. We see down in verse 18. Uh, let me, I'm trying to con- condense this a little bit. Actually, look at verse 21. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the world or the life or death, things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. If all things are yours, then, why are you over-exalting a person and not realizing all that God has given you? But they were exalting their their favorites and dividing the church, and, you know, it would be like this section over here and this section over here, and, uh, you know, I don't know if it's, it's probably never happened in this church, but sometimes people walk into a church and, you sit on a certain side because those people over there. And uh, it kind of amused me when I was pastoring in Napa. I'm on social media a lot. I, t- I tend to not be political um, just because it's secondary, I think. And, uh, but it used to really kind of make me giggle when I'd see people in the church loving one political candidate and hating another one and then the, the reverse. And they didn't even know they were all going to the same church together. I guess they're not friends online or something. And I was just thinking, yeah, that's the way to have it, you know, where Jesus is exalted. We're gathered around him. But at Corinth, they gathered around people, their favorites. Look at chapter 4, if you would, verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. He's saying if you want to think about the leaders of the church, just think about us as servants. In other words, not too many people glory in the janitor. They want to glory in the celebrity, but not not in the in the lowly servant. Look at verse six. He says, "Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. That none of you, look at this, what an indictment, may be puffed up on behalf of one against another." Why is he saying that? Because that's what was happening. So when you hear medium rare, what was the question? How do you like your steak? When he's saying you shouldn't be puffed up against one another, they were actually feeling superior to other people because of who they liked. That's just, that's, and he said it, that's carnal. That's immature. I have to treat you like babies. In chapter 5, we're not going to look at any verses there, but they were, they were very tolerant, and even, even bragging about it, how tolerant they were of sexual immorality in the church. So it seems like their first sin was that they loved to follow personality. Secondly, they were very loose as far as sexual holiness. And they were tolerating a man having his stepmother and having a relationship with her. In chapter 6, they were suing each other. Imagine if, imagine if this church was recruiting a pastor. Well, tell me about your church. <laughs> Well, we're divided, we sue each other, we tolerate sexual immorality. I mean, it just wasn't a good resume for them, was it? It Also in chapter 6, they ate food at pagan temples, but part of the pagan religion was that there was uh, prostitution going on at those temples. And so they weren't careful with their lives. Chapter 8, they were eating food sacrificed to idols which Paul says if you just buy it at the marketplace not a problem but if you sit down with a brother or a sister who's stumbled at that don't do it but they didn't care they'd rather have a good steak than than try to you know refrain from a good steak they said hey I'm going to eat my steak if it's a problem for you that's your problem so they were unloving to one another in chapter 10 once again Paul addresses this idea they were not careful about eating meat sacrificed to idols And one of the things that used to happen was this. People would, they had their pagan religions, and so they would bring their sacrifices to their pagan gods, and some of the meat would be burnt and offered up to these, you know, pagan gods. But some of it would be sold in the marketplace. So Paul said, well, if you go to the butcher shop and they have meat and it came from the the temple, you can eat it. There's no demons in the meat. Unless you have a sensitive conscience, then then don't eat it. So that's one way that you could eat that meat. Another way is you could just go eat it at the temple. But there was all kinds of immorality going on there. So they weren't careful with their lives. They were very uh, self-gratifying in regards to the things of the flesh. So personalities, celebrity pastors, tolerant of sexual immorality, not careful with their own morality. There's a lot of things that weren't going on right at this church. In chapter 11, if you turn in your Bibles to chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, some things here regarding communion. He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. So why does he believe it? Because he knows them. You know, if if somebody came to you and, and said to Pastor Jared, hey, I heard you went out to lunch with Pastor Bill. Yeah, I heard he ate too many tacos again. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Paul said, I hear these things about you, and I believe it, because he knew them. There's divisions among you, even when you come together for communion, which is supposed to celebrate the whole body of Christ. Look at verse uh, 19. For there also must be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry, another is drunk. It's not a, I was church today? Oh, we had communion. You know what so-and-so does on those days. Imagine at church, getting drunk. They would have a long extended meal together like you guys are going to have today, and I guess at the end of it, they would partake of communion, but by that time, some have had drinking too much wine. So it just wasn't a good thing. So the Apostle Paul is, you know, correcting them about those things. Chapter 12. Um, they needed a lot of instruction about spiritual gifts. They were very gifted. The work of the Holy Spirit was evident in their church. But there was something real sad going on. Um, and he has to address it. Look down at verse 12 if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. He's teaching them here, guys, about oneness. Why does he need to teach them about oneness? Because they weren't celebrating oneness. They weren't recognizing the unity of the body of Christ. We are joined together here uh, by Jesus Christ, aren't we? Amen, anybody? Amen. Amen. We're joined together, not by... Political things, politics are important. We should vote. We should be informed voters. We should vote biblically. I'm all for that. But we are not joined together um, by politics, or we're not joined together, you know, whether you're a Raiders fan or a Niners fan, you know, a Niners fan or a Traders fan. little (laughs) Bay Area joke there. We're not joined together by... You just got it, Okay, good. We're not joined together by those things. We can certainly enjoy some things together. If I'm going to go watch a, a goofy comedy movie, I know my friends that are more serious and I know the ones that would enjoy watching, you know, that's fine to, to, to enjoy those things together. But as far as the unity within the church, we are, we are organically one in Christ. And sometimes we need to work on, on recognizing that. I told the church in Napa one year, I said, listen, if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't hang out with you guys. I just wouldn't. And you probably wouldn't want to hang out with me because we're different in a lot of ways. But our oneness, when when I'm enjoying who I am in Jesus and when you are enjoying who you are in Jesus, there is an organic oneness that goes very, very deep that is better than any political uh, agreement or or, athletic team uh, appreciation or anything like that. There's an organic oneness that goes very, very deep. But the Corinthians were missing this. They were self-focused, they were self-gratifying, They were lackadaisical with their own morality. They were bragging about being tolerant of sexual immorality. They were wanting their own way so much that they were suing each other in secular courts. They were gifted. Paul talks about that in chapter 1. But they were making making divisions in the church. Look look down at verse 15. This is a very sad thing that happens here. And all of this is kind of the on-ramp to chapter 13, you just need to know why chapter 13 is so important to this church, why they needed to hear it so deeply. This is their background, and Paul knew it. Now, apparently, this is happening in the church. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it, not, is it therefore not of the body? Now, right now, I'm kind of using my hands. I'm expressing myself. In this. My feet are just down here getting tired. They're not much to look at. But some people in the church were saying, there's division in the church, and I guess I don't like the right people, and I guess I don't have enough food at the, at the agape feast, and, you know, I, I, I'm not so t- tolerant of sexual humor. I guess I, maybe I just don't belong here. Maybe I'm just a foot. Guys, what does that tell us about some people in the church? They were disqualifying themselves. I don't belong here. I, I'm not like Apollos. I'm not like Paul. I don't even know which one I like better. I'm not like Cephas, and I just wanted to come and follow Jesus, but I just don't even feel like I'm a part of this thing. I'm just a foot. And there were people that were happy to say, yeah, you're right. You're just a foot. This is, this is their mentality. That should never happen at church. Amen? That was th- three people that said amen. That should, <laughs> that should never happen at church. Amen? It should never, that should never happen where somebody says, oh, I feel like I'm not a part of it. And somebody says, you know what? God has given you great discernment. Let me pray you out of here. <laughs> that should never happen. And yet that was happening in Corinth. Look at verse 15. If the foot should say, I'm not, I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? See, Paul's correcting this. <clears throat> and look at down at Verse 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So some were saying, I'm more prominent. I'm more important. God is using me more. I'm more gifted. My gifts are more obvious. They're more public. They're on, more, they're on better display. We really don't need you guys. We're just going to have the, the Christian hand and eye fellowship. The Christian foot and ear fellowship is in the back room. <laughs> That's supposed to be a joke. You guys, I, I'm an acquired taste. I'm an acquired taste. <laughs> there was division in the church, and they were carnal people. So, Paul is explaining to them about how the gifts work and uh, the different things. Is that me popping, Jared, by the way? Okay, it's just the mic. He's, he's explaining the mechanics of the spiritual gifts because they were misusing the gifts as far as the expression and the demonstration of the gifts. But notice what he says, and this is our final kind of on-ramp to chapter 13. Look down at verse 29. He says, Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the best gifts. Look at this. Amazing. And yet I show you a more excellent way. There's something that's better than what you are involved in. There's something that's better than what you're putting emphasis on. You're emphasizing the hand over the foot, the eye over the ear. You're emphasizing this person over that person. Your priorities are all messed up, and you're just promoting yourself over and over and over again in so many ways. We love to live vicariously. We love our, our Christian heroes. It gives us a purpose. It gives us an identity, all of these things. But guys, our identity is in Christ. And we are, we are one body together. In the book of the Revelation, we read about every tribe, tongue, and nation will be before the throne of God. So here, in, at the end of chapter 12, Paul says, desire these things, yes, they're good, but I show you a more excellent way. And then he talks about the supremacy of love, and this is where we're going to camp for the rest of our time together. Look at verse 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. So tongues is simply language or dialect. That's the the strictest uh, definition of the word. He speaks of two things here. He speaks of the tongues of men, which is just human language. And in 1 Corinthians 14, he speaks of the tongue of angels, where he says nobody understands it. It needs interpretation. In fact, he doesn't even understand it himself. And so I, I believe in that explanation, that there are, tongues can come from a human source or tongues can be supernatural and not human-based. But the point that he's making here is, though I speak with the tongues of men, which can be amazing and impressive, like in Acts chapter 2, if you know the story. Or if I speak with the tongues of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. So the gift of tongues was happening at the church of Corinth, and people were amazed. Let me just show a hand. How many of you have ever heard somebody speak in a tongue? Okay. There can be something impressive about it. The only time I've ever been impressed by it is when it's been interpreted in a church service. Then it was a tremendous blessing. Otherwise, it was just kind of a gibberish to me, you know, kind of a, a Fred Flintstone thing, right? You guys remember? Say it with me. Yabba, dabba, do. yeah. <laughs> it it, it was, didn't mean anything. But the Corinthians were apparently very impressed with that. But Paul is simply saying here, eloquence is not love, There are some great speakers in the church. There are some great speakers in politics and great speakers in universities. They have a wonderful gift of oratory, and maybe you do too. But that's not love, necessarily. The Corinthians were impressed by that. But he says, it's really just a clanging symbol. Look at verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So in verse 1, he says, eloquence is not love. In verse 2, he says, prophecy, knowledge, and faith are not love. Right now, I, I know that I'm called to be a pastor teacher, and I have a certain degree of knowledge and a certain degree of, of the ability to speak in front of people and all of that. But that, that, that and, and, and some people might even say, wow, great message, or this or that, but I could be up here in my heart just saying, I can't wait to get out of here. I need my overdose of tacos. I'm just thinking tacos, you know, carne asada, carne asada, carne asada. I'm just, eloquence is not love. Knowledge is not love. Faith is not love. Prophecy is not love. It can be, those things can be an expression and have love attached to it, but not necessarily. And so apparently, guys, why is he saying that? Because apparently they were, really impressed and over-exalting prophecy and mysteries and knowledge and faith and all of these things. There was a misplaced emphasis on these things. Look at verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. So first of all, eloquence is not love. Secondly, prophecy, knowledge, faith are not love. Third, generosity and martyrdom are not love. They, they ought to be, generosity ought to always be attached uh, with love, but not necessarily. Jesus warned us about giving and not loving. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, this is Matthew 6, to be seen by them. If you do, you have no reward from your Father in heaven, so when you give to the needy, Do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. It's even possible to die for a cause. But some people may die for a cause only so that somebody remembers them. Maybe they feel like their life didn't amount to much in life, so maybe they'll have a name for themselves in death by going out, you know, in some spectacular way. So all of those things... Can be done selfishly. Let me go down that list again. Eloquence is not love. Prophecy, knowledge, faith are not love. Generosity and martyrdom are not love. So, first he rules out what love is not, and then he tells us what love is. And this is a wonderful checklist for us. Verse 4. And remember, he said, This is the better way. He says, I show you a more excellent way. So now we're going to read about the more excellent way. Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. The word suffer means to suffer. <laughs> and the word suffer long means to, to do it for a long time. But, but with kindness, and not resentment. You know, sometimes we suffer with people um, quietly in our hearts, and we kind of put up with them. We put up with them. Maybe we even wonder, how long do I have to put up with this person? And I'm, you know, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to do what I need to do, and all of that. And that's suffering long, and it, and it's, it benefits to some degree, but it, but it doesn't necessarily include kindness. Love is to suffer long and be kind. Uh, okay, I could stop right there and kind of work on that the rest of my life right there. these verses just kind of kill me. To suffer long, but to, be, but to be kind. It's an intentional thing. So it has nothing to do with my emotions or my feelings about a person or agreement or anything like that. The next thing he says is, love does not envy. Love doesn't resent somebody's good fortune, wishing that it was yours. Love does not parade itself, so love does not play the braggart. Love is not puffed up to feel superior or to be arrogantly proud. This is maybe, you know, using the body of Christ or the human body analogy, maybe this is what the the eyes in the church and the hands in the church were doing. Well, I love the feet, but I know in my heart I'm vastly superior to them, you know. So we'll just, you know, we need feet to get around. We can't, we can't just roll around from place to place. I am an I after all. I am, you know, I, but I just can't roll around. I need the feet to carry me. But, you know, more, you know, after that, they're really useless, and we really don't want them around while we're looking around. They just got us here. There's no, there's no feeling of superiority in love. And so the Apostle Paul is really pressing it home to them. Verse 5 Love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It doesn't behave improperly. It's not just about being sarcastic or having a harsh word or something like that, but the, but the word rudely there is even bigger than just what we think about rude, like, you know, somebody says something to you and you just kind of turn away and you don't, you don't say anything back. It's any kind of improper behavior. Love won't do that. He says, love does not seek its own. It's not selfish, but it's others-centered. It's so very easy. I'll just talk about myself. It's so very easy for me to be wanting to get some kind of recognition or a pat on the back or some kind of affirmation or, uh, you know, you say hello to someone and they don't quite respond as warmly as you had hoped. And there's just so many ways that we can seek to get something out of people. And, and if I don't get it, I'm let down. Well, then I've just kind of proven that I didn't have this pure love in my heart, the love that Jesus has for us. He says, love is not provoked. This one is really amazing. It means not prone to violent anger. That's, that's so, you know, don't start throwing punches. But it also means to maintain calmness when insulted. <laughs> so that's all internal stuff, isn't it? To just, they, they insulted me. I'm just going to stay calm. That's a loving thing to do. It thinks no evil. It's not a fault finder. It's not one who plans evil or revenge. So, I'll have a little confession here. Back in Orange County, where we did, my wife and I grew up in Orange County, um, I used to have a gardening business. And sometimes my customers wouldn't pay me on time. And, and uh, sometimes they would let the payment go for two or three months, you know. And I mean, I wasn't getting rich being a gardener anyway. But in my mind, as a gardener, I have ways in my heart to deal with those people. How many of you guys know what Roundup is? Just pour a gallon of Roundup. Just take off a sprinkler head, pour a gallon of Roundup in the sprinklers, put the sprinkler head back on and drive away. (laughs) no, no, I've planted evil thoughts in all your minds. Ways that we want to get revenge. I never did it, by the way. I just thought it, but that was bad enough. (laughs) I took great pleasure in thinking about killing somebody's lawn. You're not going to pay me? Okay, I'm going to get you. I know ways, you know. It's just, when we're thinking about revenge or e- evening things out or something like that, that's not love. By the way, why is he saying these things? When you, hear, when you hear medium rare please. what was the question? How do you want your steak? When he's saying don't be vengeful, what's the problem? They were being vengeful. Look at verse 6. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth. We don't enjoy finding fault or hearing of other people's failures. There have been times as a pastor in the ministry when I have been glad that certain pastors have been removed because they needed to be. They were damaging to a church. They were damaging to a community. I think there's, there's a holy a holy um, objection to people hurting the church of Jesus Christ. And so that's one thing. But, but, but you can take it too far and suddenly become, and, and I hope they never get a job again, and I hope they end up in the, at the homeless shelter, and you know what I mean? And so there's, there's a, a way that we go too far in these things. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. So we don't want to be people that are finding fault or hearing of other people's failures and being happy about it. Look at verse 7. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Finally, in verse 8, love never fails. So love is always powerful. There's always a power in love. It doesn't always mean that as we're loving people that they're going to respond maybe the way they ought to respond or that they're going to be blessed or that changes are going to happen or something like that, guys. But when we're loving people, when we're, when we're saying, Lord, Lord God, please, help my heart to be like this. Help my heart to be like this. For my heart to be like this, it means I'm not going to be impressed with these people in the church. I'm not going to separate from others because of, of I see them as a celebrity or they're, they're my favorite church leader or they're my favorite person in the church. I'm not going to be dividing over things. I'm not going to be self-gratifying. Lord, I want to be like all of this. When I, when I, guys, when I, when we, as the body of Christ, when we are walking in this, it's always powerful. It may not always be received, and we can't do anything about that. But it's always powerful. Love never loses its effectiveness. That's literally what the definition is. Love never fails. Love doesn't lose its power or its effectiveness. It's always strong. It's always good. Now look at verse nine. Interesting things here that Paul takes kind of a turn with these guys. He says at the second part of verse 8, excuse me, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. But whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether, Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. So Paul here speaks of some of the wonderful gifts that God has given to his church. You would agree with me, I think, and I hope, that these things are important in the church for today. Prophecy is important, either the foretelling or the forthtelling of God's word. It's important for the church. It's given to us to edify the church, to build one another up. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Tongues is an important thing. I believe tongues is primarily the focus is to praise God, and when it's done in a public way and there's a uh, an interpretation, it's a beautiful expression. Uh, Of a language of love to God, and it's a beautiful thing. Knowledge is amazing to hear to hear somebody speak knowledgeably on any subject, particularly the Bible. For me, I think for us is a wonderful thing to gain new insights into the into the heart and the person of God. It's a wonderful thing. All of those things are needed uh, for our time here on the earth. But what does he say? Look at verse eight. Prophecy, at some point, prophecy is going to fail or it's going to end? Guys, let me ask you a question, and I want somebody to answer. Uh, but you have to raise your hand, and I'll call on you, because we are doing things in order here, okay? So when is prophecy not going to be needed anymore? You can't answer. You neither can you. When is prophecy no longer going to be needed? I think there's an extra cookie in this answer. For some. Yeah, when we're with Jesus. When, when are, what, is, what is tongues? Tongues is adoring God in a language that we don't quite understand. When is tongues going to no longer be needed? When we're right there looking at Jesus face to face. When is knowledge no longer going to be needed? In, in regards to us studying our Bibles and looking forward to heaven and learning how to love one another, when is that no longer going to be needed? It's going to fail at some point. When we're in heaven. Right now, we're studying about the heart of God. We're studying about love. We're studying about the the heart of Jesus Christ, how he loves humanity, how he loves you, and how he wants to love through you. When are we no longer going to need to study about how to love when we're looking at love right face to face? See, these things that we sometimes exalt... had two amens over at the blue table. (laughs) These things that sometimes we exalt... Guys, they're important for the church, but they're secondary to love. And those things that lead us to love are all going to fail. They're going to pass away one day anyway. So why were we going to exalt them inappropriately? Look at verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Right now in our pilgrimage on earth, we have a certain degree of knowledge. We do speak forth the word of God to a a limited degree. We partially understand the things of God here and now. We are able to describe those things in a limited fashion. We're doing our best. I'm I'm grateful to the Lord. Somebody asked me the other day, what's been one of the best things about being a Christian for as long as you have? And and I said, not having to change my mind (laughs) about who Jesus is to just keep going forward and forward and forward and and growing deeper and understanding the heart of God more and understanding the Bible more and understanding the workings of God and having his ways change my ways, not my ways change his ways. It's been great, but I only know a part of it right now. I've only experienced a part of Jesus right now. One day I'm going to step into his glory, either at the rapture of the church or when he takes me home, and I'm going to have the full package. I'm going to have everything. Everything that we study and everything that we're trying to do and everything that we're leaning towards, we're going we're to graduate and enjoy that whole thing with Jesus Christ face to face. There was a, uh, a, a, a basketball announcer for the Warriors. He's not on anymore, I don't think. But he, when a guy would go up for a slam dunk, he would say, elevation sensation. And I like to use that term for the rapture of the church. It's going to be an elevation sensation when we go up. But then we're not going to need Bible studies anymore. We're not going to have to like wonder what that tongue was. We're not going to have to wonder if that prophecy is going to come to pass. Why? Because all the things that are leading us to him have led us to him. And now we're there. But guys, these are the things that the church at Corinth was over-exalting. Oh, I love to hear this guy speak. Oh, we love this guy. We love the founding pastors. the good old days when we used to have faith. All these things that they were exalting and dividing the church over, all these things are going to pass away. My wife and I were music majors in, in college, and uh, you have to play music in a certain way. And the, and the teacher used to say, you're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. And sometimes that's what we do at church. And that's what Paul's saying. Hey, Corinthians, you're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. You're, you're putting the secondary things first. Look at verse 9, for now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, Jesus, face to face, heaven, then that which is in part will be done away. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. When you're a kid, I mean, you just have to have the latest toy or whatever it is and it's the best thing and I've been I'm old enough to remember cabbage patch dolls. You guys remember cabbage patch? You had to have a cabbage patch. Anybody still have to have a cabbage patch? If if you do, that's okay, but <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just the things we thought we had to have when we were younger. Now we just think, why did I make such a big deal about that? And the apostle Paul has been telling them, you guys are acting like children. You're dividing You're dividing the family over which color of cabbage patch doll hair is better. You're dividing the family over these things. And he's saying, you know, he says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I understood as a child I had misplaced priorities. I had misplaced thoughts. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away those things. So he's urging them on. See how gentle he is as a father to them, them urging them to not be babies anymore to not be carnal but to be mature. He says in verse 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Sometimes you go into a maybe a rest, you know a restaurant or something and, and you go in to use the restroom and you're and you're looking, you know, you're kind of checking yourself before you leave the restroom. And it's just there's one dull light bulb and the, the mirror's dirty and you just can't see much. And that's as, for as much as we may grow on earth to know Jesus and to enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ, as much as we may know on earth and to, to enjoy fellowship among one another and all of this, compared to what's coming, it's just dim. Do you guys think about heaven a lot? You should. Think about heaven a lot. Think about heaven a lot. Think about, think about being in the presence of Jesus Christ. How does the old hymn go? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim, right? Sing it with me. In the light of his glory and grace. These, all, all these things that, that divide us sometimes are just dim compared to what's coming. And if we think childishly, we will let these things become bigger than they should be. Important, yes. Bigger than they should be, no. No. Verse 13 as we close here. And now abide faith, hope, and love, and these three. Can you read it with me? But the greatest of these is love. What is faith about? Faith is being sure of what you don't see and confident of what you hope for. What is hope about? Hope, biblically speaking, is a confident expectation of something to come. And then, of course, there's love. So faith leads us into something we don't see yet. And hope is an expectation of getting there. And those abide. We have those right now, and we have love right now. But he says, the greatest is love. Why? Because one day, guys, one day we're not going to need faith anymore. <laughs> that sound good to anybody? We're, we're gonna, we, we will have crossed the finish line. And we'll see him face to face. And we'll see each other. We're not going to need hope anymore because the thing that we're confidently hoping for will have come to pass. But what, are, what is still going to be there? Starts with an L, ends with an of. <laughs> Love. This is the thing to major in. I have been so challenged by this chapter I hate, love it. (laughs) I hate it and I love it. It's so challenging. It takes me apart. And then in chapter 14, verse 1, he'll say, pursue love. And that means to chase after it. He doesn't say pursue tolerance. He doesn't say pursue putting up with people. (laughs) He doesn't say pursue biting your lip. He says, pursue love. That's our high calling, guys. It's a good calling, amen? Yeah. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you that you so loved the world that you sent your only son uh, to be a sacrifice for our sins. And, and that's what we needed and still need, a Savior. Lord, I pray that you would move upon our hearts and show us the supremacy of love. Father, help us to guard our hearts against the lesser things and even sometimes petty things that divide us, Lord. Forgive us for those things, God. Forgive us if we have disqualified ourselves. Forgive forgive us if we have exalted ourselves. Forgive us for ever letting anything come between us and the rest of your sons and daughters, Lord, and the world. So thank you, Father. Teach us how to love, we pray, God, for your glory and for your name, Jesus. Amen.